Let's turn for a little to the chapter we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and at verse 4, these words of Jesus, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As we know, the 40-day fast in the wilderness and this ferocious bombardment by Satan uh, when Jesus must have been so hungry would have been an experience that would have been etched forever in the human mind, in the humanity of Jesus. Jesus, as we know, is God, a very God, but he was Jesus in our nature. And he knew exactly what hunger was. Jesus would have been as hungry as you or I would have been if we had fasted 40 days in the wilderness. So Jesus understood 100% what true, real hunger is like. And so this is an experience that would have been, would have been always with him. And, uh, of course, as, as God, of very God, he knows everything. But Jesus had to experience, come in our nature, and really experience, identify 100% with us to know and to experience these things and to gain victory for us as well. And so Jesus was ferociously uh, tempted by the devil. This, of course, wasn't the only time that the devil would have tempted Jesus. It tells us in verse 11 that 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 the devil left him. The devil left him. That doesn't mean that he left him for good. He left him at that particular moment. He left him for a season. But all throughout his life, and particularly throughout his public ministry, Satan would never have been far away. And sometimes Satan comes, as we know, like a roaring lion, and other times as an angel of light. And in fact, Jesus was able to understand on one occasion as Peter was trying to take him off course, where Peter was trying to tell him that he he wasn't to be going the way of death and so on. And Jesus recognized that the words, remember Peter had just made the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet within a moment, Jesus is having to rebuke and saying, get you behind me, Satan. He was recognizing that Peter had become a mouthpiece of Satan. Satan was never far away. And a lot of the, what was happening and a lot of the opposition that Jesus was experiencing was being stirred up by the evil one. Little do we understand just the, the ferocity and the intent of evil that is in the devil's heart. And his whole purpose is to ruin and to spoil the work of God. That was his intent from the very beginning, was to to spoil the handiwork of God. And the greatest handiwork of God, of course, is in his people. And that is why the the Christian will always be in the the focus of the demons, of Satan and all his his demons, the, the Christian. And he's had thousands and thousands and thousands of years of practice. But his one aim is always, it's to get against God. And uh, so he was always attacking Christ. And of course, probably the greatest ferocity of all came at the time when 
that from the time of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion, because Jesus himself said, this is the hour and the power of darkness. It was as if the very gates of hell were opened and just the whole demonic force was unleashed upon Christ. And we can imagine that even on the cross he would be, he would be bombarded. So, although this, this was a, a period of uh, real ferocity, it wasn't going to be the only period in the life of our Lord. Now, one of the things I think when we come to this well-known incident, I'm not going to go through it all here today at all, is, is that we're so thankful that Jesus was tempted. Because we're told that in the scripture, that, that, he, that he was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. That's a wonderful verse. Because it means that when we are really battling with temptation, which we do, it's part and parcel of our Christian life, and the Lord sees fit that we're, that we're uh, bombarded. Martin Luther used to say it was one of, the, one of the key things that the Lord used in our life to regulate Christian growth was temptation. Temptation, remember, doesn't equal sin, but temptation, it's very easy to move from temptation to sin because if we yield in any way to temptation and give in to it, then of course we sin. Now, this is the difference. The Lord never sinned. The Lord never yielded. But he was tempted. And he was tempted brutally. And he was tempted in all points, like as we are. That's what the Word of God tells us. And how thankful we are. And it means that we can go to him. And he wants us to go as a great high priest who understands and is en- will enable us in our temptations he will grant us the grace and the strength to resist. His word tells us that. The only problem is sometimes we don't go to him. And we have to confess that there are some times that we, we yield all too easily and too willingly to the temptation. But we are thankful that our Lord was tempted in our place and for us. Now we read in verse 1 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now in the previous chapter, we saw the heavens opened at the end of that chapter. The heavens opened and uh, the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting upon Christ. And these great words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet the Holy Spirit who has come in, in power upon Jesus the very first thing after this baptism is that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And right away at the very beginning here, we see that at the very start of his public ministry, we find that this is when, when Satan comes with all his power. And he's determined right at the start, here's Jesus, as it were, embarking upon the public ministry. Right then, Satan is in. Because his whole aim is to take Jesus off track, to try and get Jesus to yield, to try and break his mission, to spoil the purposes and plans of God. But it was essential that Christ had to meet Satan And had to triumph over him. This was an essential, an absolute essential part of his work and of his mission and of his ministry. Now, we sometimes think that that if trials or problems come our way, then that we're not walking in the right way. 
And if we're meeting problems and trials in life, we say to ourselves, oh, you know, this, the Holy Spirit cannot be in me. The Holy Spirit cannot be directing me. I cannot be walking in the Spirit. We're told in Galatians, walk in the Spirit. And you're saying to yourself, well, if I'm meeting trial and there's problems coming into my life and I'm meeting temptations all the time, I can't be walking in the Spirit. Well, we, sh- we mustn't think like that. Because here we find that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's not that God will tempt anybody in and of himself, but this was an essential part of Christ's ministry here. And so we have, we have to understand that, we, that this, this is not an indication that if problems and trials and temptations come into our life, that we are going in the wrong course at all. Now, Jesus had fasted 40 days and and 40 nights. And if you can imagine what that would be like to be without food for 40 days and 40 nights, you would imagine that he must have been severely, really, really hungry. And uh, I would believe that in that 40 days and 40 nights, that Jesus would have been given over to prayer and to meditation. This was his time of preparation for the great ministry and work that he was entering into. And you find the Lord doing that with the likes of Moses before he went embarked on the great work of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. He had that time away in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul, before he became the great evangelist, the great leader of the church, setting up churches, <coughs> the great Gentile missionary, he too had his time away alone in the desert. And Jesus is here, he has been set aside in this time, and I believe that this would be a key time of absolute devotion and meditation and prayer uh, with with the Father. And so the tempter comes to him from the outside and the tempter came and said to him, now as we know, Satan is malicious in the extreme. And, you know, part of what Satan does, which he didn't, wasn't able to do with Jesus, but which he does with us, he, when he comes with his temptation and his enticing and his, he, he will set out before us in the way of temptation in such a way that we will say, I have to have this. He will make it in such a way that it is so desirable and that it is so right and that there is actually nothing wrong with it. You go back to the temptation in Eden and he he colored it and carved it and set it in such a way that it, it was taking down, he was making it much, much less than what God had said. And in fact, he was saying, that's not really what God said at all. And he he is the master of deception. And the moment that we yield, or very shortly after we yield, if we yield to the temptation, he then changes. And he becomes the accuser. And he then comes and he accuses us relentlessly. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's another of the definitions that scripture gives us. First he's a deceiver, he's a tempter. And when he succeeds then he accuses us. And you see how malicious he is. And of how how he is a disturber of our peace. And that's what he does. Tempts us. Deceives us. And then 
We can be going along fine in our Christian life and then we fall, we, do, we give in, we yield and then he comes and he accuses us and as he accuses us he has become the disturber of our peace. The peace that we enjoyed is gone. And so this is, this is, this is, this is part of the way he works all the time. Now you notice that his strategy with Jesus is very similar to, to that of which he used in Eden. Because he came by question, questioning. When he came to Eve, he began with a question. And it's the same here with Jesus. If he comes to, G, to Eve and says, did, did God say? Plants the seed of doubt in her heart. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you are the Son of God. Are you sure you're the Son of God? Are you really the Son of God? And you see what he's doing because, you remember, the Father had just made this declaration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan is kind of saying, if you really are the Son of God, do you think that your Father would permit you to be here you will remember you were led by the Spirit in here, and the Spirit is not leading you out. Forty days, you've had no food. What kind of heavenly Father would do that to a son, if you are the Son? So you see, he's trying to, to cast doubt, to bring doubt into the mind of Jesus. And uh, you wouldn't be starving, surely, if, if, this, if he was your Father. And of course, uh, He's wanting at the very start to, to take Jesus off course. And it's also very interesting that Satan, Satan's attack on the last Adam is very similar to the first Adam in that the temptation centers around food. Because it was with regard to, remember, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where they were not, to, they were not permitted to take of the fruit of that tree, but they were permitted to take the fruit of any other tree. But it's in that area, that very area of food, that he comes, he came to Eve, and now he's coming to our Lord. But of course there was a great difference, in the sense that in the Garden of Eden, it was far easier, in a sense, you would say, for Eve <laughs> to resist, because here's this one tree that they were forbidden. But if you looked round that garden, it was full of everything else that their hearts desired. And they could have it. So Eve wasn't hungry. Eve wasn't in need. But Satan brought her focus upon this as being the most essential thing that she was to have. The, the garden was beautiful. Everything in the garden was perfect. Now Jesus' surrounds couldn't have been more different. He was in the howling wilderness. He was 40 days without food. He was famished from a human point of view. And so, but Satan is coming in the same way, with the same, the very same strategy. But the wonderful thing is that while the first Adam failed, the second Adam resisted. Or the last Adam. He resisted the temptation. And you see, the tempter, was, his aim was to destroy the confidence of the Son and the Father. That's what he was trying to do. If you're the Son, he's trying to destroy, which would be the worst thing that could happen. That's why he's trying to destroy the Son's confidence in his Father. 
and to cast doubt on who he is and to take matters into his own hand. In other words, to step out of the Father's will. To begin to do things himself. Because every step that Jesus took in this world, it was in fulfillment to the will of the Father. He kept saying that all the time. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Every step was according to the Father's will. But we see that Jesus rebuffs Satan's temptation straight away. And how does he do so? He does so by quoting from the word. And it's very interesting that even our Lord didn't stop and argue with the devil. You would imagine that Jesus could have started saying, Listen, do you not realize who I am? I, and, and, and so, no, all he says, and in every temptation he's consistent in it. And he says, it is written. It is written. It was the same with the, with the next one in verse 7. The next temptation, again, it is written. And then when you come to the last temptation, verse 10, it is written. You see what Jesus is doing? He's setting before us the great example that God's word is the key. The word of God is the key. And when Jesus says this, he makes the greatest state, one of the great statements. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is absolutely essential for us to take on board because God's word is key to everything. The very world that we live in exists because of God's word. In the beginning, God. God said, let there be light. Let there be, let there be, let there be. The word of God brought into being. And people can have all fanciful ideas about how this world came into being. We go to Genesis and it tells us very simply. God said, let there be. That is the word of God. But not only is that word the word that brought into being. It is also the word that upholds this world. There are so many people today panicking about the world that we're living in. What's going to happen to the world? I don't know. I'll tell you one thing that's going to happen to the world at the end. It's going to burn up in fire. The Bible tells us that. And there's nothing that anybody can do to prevent that. And we're told that very simply, that the elements will melt with fervent heat. And that there will be new heavens and a new earth. That we're told all that. But what we are told also is that this world is upheld, sustained by the word of his power. God upholds this world. And as long as it is his will to do so, it will remain no matter what else may happen. But not only is this world brought into being and sustained by his power, we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by his word. It is his word that brought you into the place of salvation. We're told very simply, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So, although maybe at the time when you came to faith you didn't analyze it in such a way, this is how it is. It is by the word and through the word that we come because as we know the Lord is the, 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 the living word. And again, Paul asks the question with regard to the Holy Spirit. 
He says, how does the Spirit come? Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer is hearing with, by, with faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are never separate. There's no division in the Godhead. And the Word and the Spirit are always together. They always accompany one another. Many people think that in order to be full of the Spirit, that you just kind of put yourself into this sort of, maybe, I don't know, let yourself go into this kind of empty trance and just say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. And that that's the way the Spirit comes. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. This is, this is the way. And it is the Word and prayer. And if you ever find people, and sometimes I've come across people who, who can have so very, sometimes very strange ideas and strange practices, and practices that are even contrary to God's word. And they'll say, oh, the Spirit has led me. The Spirit is telling me that this is what I've got to do. And you're saying to yourself, no, no, you're wrong. Because the Holy Spirit will never take you or lead you in a way that is contrary to the word. The word and the Spirit are one. So that... If, if somebody is going in another direction to the word of God, then it's certainly not the Holy Spirit that is leading them in that way. There is a unity and a togetherness in the Godhead, and that is reflected in this world and reflected in the people of God. That the people of God are, are in one with the word and with the Spirit. So we've got to remember that the more time we spend in the word, reading the Word, studying the Word, meditating upon the Word prayerfully, the more we believe that the Spirit's influence will be in and upon our life. Because as Paul said, it is, uh, how do we get the Spirit? It is, it is through the Word. Now, of course, there's many great blessings that come to us through the Word of God. One of the great, another of the great blessings is the blessing of liberty and freedom. Remember what Jesus said. You shall know the truth, the word, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. So many people bound today and they're bogged down with this and that. And the sad thing is, so many people think that God's word is a heavy, a heavy tome that just crushes you into the ground. And that I'm telling you, there's loads of people out there today and they will feel sorry for you as a Christian. And they'll think that your life is one of just, that you're just shackled with all kinds of rules and do's and don'ts and burdens. And that you haven't the first clue of what liberty and freedom is like. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody knows liberty and freedom like the Christian. And the closer we live to Christ the freer and more liberated we are. And that's what Jesus says. The truth shall set you free. Do you remember that? Remember when you first came to faith? Do you remember when you first came to that sense of assurance of your salvation? And the freedom you felt. The sense of peace that, that enveloped your heart. The world could never give you that. This was in Jesus. And this is, this, is, this is this freedom, this liberty 
that the Lord gives in and through through his word. Again, God's word gives us wisdom and discretion. In the psalm that we were singing there, the testimonies of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And that's what God's word does for us. God's word, you see, is, is a lamp and a light to our path. So God's word gives us, this is the beauty of it, that so often God's word is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. But if the closer we live to God's word, and just say, for example, in the morning you read God's word prayerfully, you meditate upon it. Although the passage that you're reading may have no direct bearing upon what is happening to you in the day, the very fact that you've been grounded in that word, and remember the Spirit accompanies the word, you are given a direction. The Lord will help you to make the right decisions because he will give you his wisdom and his discretion. Discretion is a wonderful thing. And so as you journey through life, you're making the right choices, the right decisions, because your life is filled with the word, based on the word, and the Spirit is applying that word into your soul. Again, it's through the word that we get assurance. One of the great things that we we need for our lives, we require for our lives. In fact, as we come to our communion, it's one of the things (coughs) so often, and Satan Satan's the master, you know, when you're coming to a communion, he'll be whispering into you, ah, you were never properly converted. You've been following for years, but you haven't really been following. You're following and you're scared to go back. That's what's wrong. You're just, you, because you, you say, what will people say if I give up? You're nothing but a hypocrite. Satan comes to you and he'll say these sort of things. And that can be difficult because when we begin to look in at ourselves, what do we see? We see a black heart. But you know, when we go to the Word, the Word again will assure us. John, remember, and the minister's going through that just now in John, First John's letter. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, that's one of the great things in First John. John, First John gives so many pointers through the Word. To the fact that we have eternal life. And so God brings these things to Like for instance, we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Because we love other Christians. That's one of the evidences. There's loads of these marks given to us. And, Paul, and John says, I have written these things to you so that you may know. So assurance is, is, is so important. But we get our assurance uh, through the word. And again, Jesus shows us in this passage that it is through the word that we we fight the enemy. The word, remember, we're told in Ephesians, is the sword of the Spirit. And what a sword this is. It's sharper. The word, as we're told, it's it's actually sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's vital that you and I remember this, that when we're tempted, bring the word to bear. Because if we stop and we say, you know, don't stop and reason with the the tempter at any point. Because one of the things that he always tempts you or says to you is, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. 
It's not what you're making out. Well, the moment you begin to reason in your own mind and say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe it isn't that he's got you. The moment you're aware that you're being tempted, that you're being, you've got to bring in the word. And just what, just the, as, as, as Jesus says, it's written. This is what it says. It, it, it is written. And uh, every time it is written, be gone, Satan, for it is written. And this is a great example. That's why it's a sword of spirit. We're given the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Part of the armory. And that is how when we, when we meet the enemy. That we do so with the word. So let us seek then to make this word. The word of the living God. Our rule. That it's what we live on. It's what we will die on. It's what we will live out every day what we go to sleep on at night that it'll be our pillow at night and our light and our lamp through the day because if that is the case then the Lord will take us through this world being guided in the right way so that we will hear what God the Lord will speak let us pray Lord our God we we give thanks for this word that you've given to us this word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path This word that is sweeter than honey. This word that nourishes us and strengthens us for the journey. This word that we live on and this word that we must die upon. And so we pray, Lord, that your word will become ever more precious to us. Grant us your grace for everything and in everything. Take us to our home safely, we pray. Do us good and cleanse us from our every sin. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We'll conclude singing in Psalm 91, the 91st Psalm, and verses 4 to 6. Psalm 91, and at verse 4. Leich nie doloch fos, bi jarab se fui eske, is irin bi se tarak gut, Marske dor yin gachre. Fachus in uevas auntenai. Chavi ost gilt no ska. No fos fachus ne seidjevis. Roy erfjog en la. Psalm 91, and we sing. Well, we'll sing verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. Uh, of Psalm 91. <clears throat> <clears throat>